Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to call and equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make Him known. For more information, you can visit our website at cityofrefuge.org. Good morning, church. My name is Ellen Freemian, and I'm wife to Pastor Brandon Freemian, and sister to all of you who are in the family of Christ, not just here, but around the world. And that's a beautiful thing to celebrate this morning as we look around in our congregation, and maybe some of you have family um, that are not here, not even in this country, and and we just go um, send our love out to those people that can't be with their mothers today because they're far away. So this morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of James. And as you will remember, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it doesn't spend a lot of time articulating the gospel as a theology lesson. It spends more time articulating the gospel as it is applied in our daily life and in our community. And James oftentimes uses the tactic of a challenge in order to teach us. Maybe he's more like a coach than an inspirational speaker. So already, James has challenged us to consider our trials as pure joy. He's also challenged us to remain fast under trials and temptations, because when we consider our trials joy and we remain steadfast under them, it grows and refines our faith. He's challenged us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And last week, we were challenged to beware of favoritism that creeps up in our community, particularly around favoritism towards the rich over those who are poor, recognizing that we are all equally in need of a savior, and we are all equally saved by his grace. So today we're going to continue our study in the book of James in chapter 2, 14 through 26, and it will challenge us to get our couch potato faith off the couch and put it to work. So I wanted to start with a picture that I always think about. You can show the next slide when I study this passage. And so can somebody help me? What is wrong with this picture? It's a screen door on a on a submarine. So maybe some of you are like some generations back, whatever generation we're on now, and you can recall this song from Rich Mullins in 1987, where he talks about this verse, and he says, faith without works, it's like a song you can't sing. It's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. And without ruining the analogy, I wanted to ask us, so why exactly is a screen door useless? It's not just like a bonus bit, right? That's like, it's cute, it's there for decoration, right? It's actually useless because it destroys the submarine. If you put this thing submerged under the water like it's supposed to be, it lets all the water in and the whole thing is destroyed. So it's not just an oh well matter. And James says the same thing about our faith without works. It's not just an oh well matter, it destroys our faith just like it did the submarine with the screen door. So with that picture in mind, let's now turn to James chapter 2, 14 through 26. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, comes to you and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things that is needed for his body. What good is that? So, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But some of you will say, well, you have faith, I have works. 
show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. But you know what? Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And you see that faith was active alongside his works and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. And you see that a person is not justified by works, by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, not, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, so Spicy James is at it again, has some big hitter questions for us. So as we look at this verse, uh, these verses together, I wanted to propose three questions to kind of guide our study. So right out of the gate, we're going to start with the big one. Can faith without works save? But the majority of our time, we're going to focus on these examples of how to put our faith to work that James gives. First, on how we treat those in need. Second, on the story of Abraham and Isaac. And third, Rahab. So we're going to do a little Old Testament walkthrough today. And then finally, I want us to really let this scripture be used by the Holy Spirit to convict us of those areas where maybe we've installed a screen door on our submarine of faith and ask ourselves, is my faith really at work? All right, so let's just jive right into this first question. Can faith without work save? So going back to verse 14, James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he just has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? So this is a very, very important question, right? Because it addresses the central element of our Christian faith, why we come and we sing what a beautiful name it is. So what does it mean to be saved? That's something we throw around in our Christian lingo all the time. And it's not something that we use in our culture, maybe outside of the church as much. So it's important to have a few scriptures in mind, even if you can't memorize them completely, at least you know the references, so that you can really articulate what does it mean from the biblical perspective to be saved. So these are some of the ones that I think are important. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 3, 23, 24. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then finally, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God and not the results of our works so that no one can boast. So if we summarize these ideas from Paul, first, we recognize that we have all sinned, every single one of us. And sin means that we do things, we think things, and we say things that go against what God had in mind for us to do. And sometimes we just ignore what God has to say. And that's a sin too. And that is so important that God says that we deserve death when we sin against him. 
He's basically saying that God's way is life and all the rest of it is death. It's that important. But Jesus paid the price when he died the death that we deserved and he lived the life that we could never live, but we should have. And he died to pay the price for our sin with his death on the cross. And it proved that he did pay that price when he rose again from the grave. And he restored our relationship with God so that we could have eternal life today with him. And we received that gift that we could never buy by putting our faith in Jesus and what he did. It's his works that save us and not our own. So that's really important. And I just encourage you that if this is the first time you've like really heard those words, or maybe you need to hear them afresh, that you would just ask God to reveal salvation to you, that you would accept this free gift today. So the question is, knowing this important statement from Paul, is what James writes in, chapter four, in verse 14 in conflict with what Paul writes. Now this question has been debated by the well-known theologians for centuries. And I'm not going to get into all the historical debate, but it's quite the drama. But to answer this question, I think it's very, very important, again, to understand what terms we're using here by faith and by works. And so you can see the picture there. It's like Paul versus James. Way back, right? That's an older picture. All right, so, so what does it really mean when we say faith? Again, a good scripture reference is from Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is more than wishful thinking or a positive attitude that might say, you know, just have faith, you can do it, right? That's not what we're talking about. Faith is assurance of things hoped for. You're sure of it. And it's a conviction that you're gonna act upon it. And we used to have um, a pastor here that would say, think about a chair. Now, all of you walked in and you saw a chair there and you would say, yeah, that's a chair. But you can have faith that that's a chair all day long, but you don't really believe that it's a chair until you sit in it and you trust it to hold your weight. And so all of us trusted that our chairs were chairs today. And that's what our faith should do. Not just happy thoughts that we have, but faith that we act upon that transforms us and that we prove on a daily basis by the way that we act and follow Jesus. So... On the flip side, what are works? Works are not just like go to work, punch a time card, get your money and go home, right? For our livelihood. When we talk about biblical works, those are deeds or actions that we do in obedience for God. And not for our own glory, but for God's glory. We do works because we put our assurance, our conviction, our faith in Him and not to earn our salvation. That's a price that we could never pay. So remember, Jesus is teaching from Matthew 5, 16. Let your little light shine, right, as the song says, so that people around you can see those good works and not give glory to you, but to praise your Father in heaven. So going back to our question, are James and Paul contradictory? No. When James questions the validity of inactive faith, he is not suggesting that we have salvation apart from the works of Jesus and our faith in his death and resurrection to save us from our sins. He's making the case that genuine faith is not just a happy thought belief or head knowledge. It's a conviction so firm that it's going to transform your life and, it's going, and you're going to act on it. That is genuine, real, living, saving faith. 
All right, so that's pretty heavy. So, so let those soak in there, right? Our salvation, our faith, our works. Something to go back and study for sure. But the rest of the, this section, James focuses again on those practical ways that we can take our faith and put it to work. And maybe some ways where maybe our faith has gotten a little lazy and needs to get off the couch. So we're gonna look now at three examples. Again, how we treat those in need, the story of Abraham, and then the story of Rahab. So let's look at the first one. James writes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, you got this, be warm and filled, without giving him the things that his body needs, what good is that? You just wished him well for the rest of his life, but you won't take care of the need in front of you. So this is a hypothetical situation. We don't know if this is really what happened, but for us, we're gonna treat it like a hypothetical situation, a situation that may have happened, or a situation that we look at, a hypothetical one, to promote our critical thinking of it, to consider the perspectives of this situation, whether or not it has real elements. Because sometimes when we think of a real situation, we get kind of judgy and pointing fingers, right? That's not what James wants us to do. He says, look at the motivations here. Look at what's going on. So let's consider those. So first, what does it really mean? What is your, that you believe when you bless somebody with all peace and prosperity and goodness, even if you offer them the good news of salvation, but you don't take care of their needs right now? Well, maybe that would suggest that you believe that those things are less important than whether or not they go to heaven or hell. Right, that's our eternal perspective, but maybe you don't think that what they're going through right now is important. Maybe that's what that suggests. Maybe it suggests that it's a job for the deacons, right? Send them to a benevolence request. That's not my job. Uh, I don't think we get out of that one from what James says, right? Um, or maybe it's just their own fault, right? Like your physical needs are yours, but let me tell you about Jesus. And that doesn't sound like Jesus at all. Nor would it be good for us to just take care of somebody's physical needs without recognizing there's deep spiritual needs underneath those physical needs. We are made in the image of God. We have both physical attributes and spiritual attributes. And when Jesus came, he addressed both. He came to preach the good news to those who are poor and in captivity. But he also healed the sick and cast out the demons and fed the hungry. He did all of the above because he wanted people to really experience what it was like to have wholeness and new life in him. So he took care of both spiritual and physical needs. So of course we know the answer, right? We should take care of both. But sometimes our faith can kind of get burnt out. Sometimes the needy seem to be all around us and overwhelmed and we're just quite frankly tired. I was kind of feeling this way and sometimes we all feel this way. And so I picked up a book of about a woman that I consider maybe the energizer buddy of taking care of the needy, Mother Teresa. It was called Call to Mercy. And it was a memoir about her. And so it had some of her teachings and her writings, as well as reflections about what, what, how people saw God working through her to take care of those who are both physical and spiritually needy. And I really saw that there were two ideas from scripture that really motivated her and encouraged her to keep going and keep striving to take care of anyone she saw in need. The first was that she sought to emulate Jesus's love for her in loving other people. And this is right from scripture. First John 3, 16 through 18 says, 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus came and he laid down his life for us. And so therefore we should ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has earthly possessions and sees a brother in need and withholds his compassion, how can God's love abide in him? That sounds exactly like James. And what this is saying here is if we've experienced this great love, it should just like squeeze out of us, right? And Mother Teresa said it like this, what if I am like this little pencil with which God is writing a love letter to the world? And if I don't use my part, and if I'm not being willing to sacrificially lay down my life for others, then maybe that's not the way that God intended it to be, right? That I'm supposed to write this love letter to the entire world by the way I treat those I see. The, not only did Mother Teresa be motivated, and we should be motivated by emulating the love of Jesus when we take care of those in need, but we should enact our love for Jesus, remembering the words of Matthew 25, when Jesus talks about the final day of judgment, and he has the sheep and the goats, if you'll remember. And they say, well, well Lord, like, we didn't know. Um, we didn't see you. Both sides say this, actually. And what Jesus replies is this. When you see the hungry and you feed them, when you see the thirsty and give them something to drink, when you welcome strangers in your midst, clothe the naked, visit the sick or imprisoned, we do all of these things towards others, but we're really doing them for Jesus. Mother Teresa once said, one of the highest forms of worship that we can have is to find the least among us and treat them as we would treat Jesus. And as I was reflecting on those two ideas of both emulating the love of Jesus and the acting love for Jesus, I was really transformed to see the whole world and the people who are made in God's image in a different light. My faith got less burnt out. It got off the couch a little bit more and started loving in a way that Jesus would have me to. So let's look now at a different example of how we can put our faith to work in Father Abraham. So if you'll remember back to Genesis, Father Abraham was given a glorious promise, but an impossible one. He was told that he would have descendants as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. But there is a problem. He was too old to have a kid, and so was his wife. But God's promise was faithful, and God kept promising over and over, but Abraham had to wait for it. And while waiting for it, he took matters into his own hands, and so did Sarah. She said, well, just have my handmaiden here, you know, like, you can have a kid with her, we'll call it a day, it'll be fine. So he's like, okay. So at his wife's bidding, he commits adultery with her handmaiden. And so he has a son whose name is Ishmael, and God says, no, no, Abraham, you jumped the gun. You're going to have a son by your wife, and that's going to be the child of promise that I was talking about. And Abraham's like, okay, God, I got it, I got it. So then he comes across Abimelech, who's this king, and he's sort of afraid of this king. And so he thinks to himself, my wife is like beautiful, right? And if Abimelech sees my beautiful wife, he's going to kill me so he can have my wife. So I'm just going to pass her off to him as my sister. Wait, 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 wait. Abraham, you had a promise from God that this woman was going to be the mother of your descendants that God had promised that was going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. So God took care of it again. And while Abraham had some foibles in his faith, God's remained faithful. And so the child of the promise was born. His name was Isaac. Things seemed to be going well. They were walking in line with God. They were doing the promise thing. But then God had a test for Abraham. 
It was a big test. It was a test to see if he was going to jump the gun again or trust in God's timing, his provision, and his promises. He says in Genesis 22, Abraham, take your son, that only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. That's a pretty big deal. So what was Abraham going to do? Was he going to take like a backup offering just in case? Was he going to jump the gun, take matters into his own hands? Or was he going to trust and obey God, the God of promise, even when it was sacrificial and even when the way out didn't seem clear? God tells us to do this all the time. And there's so many stories in the Bible like this one. But this one's pretty poignant. So Abraham and Isaac go up the mountain, as it shows here. Isaac's carrying the wood. And just as Abraham raises his knife to kill Isaac, God stays his hand. And he says, yeah, Abraham, now I see that you will trust me and you will obey me, even when it costs you everything, all the promises that you've ever had and your future. And look, there's a ram in the thicket. God provides again. But this is not new for God. He had always provided for Abraham. So maybe you can think of one of these kind of stories where your faith was, was put into action because God asked you to trust and obey him and do exactly what he said, even when it didn't make sense and even though it seemed costly. It's these times that we can look back and we see God's provision. And just as James writes in chapter one, we can consider those trials pure joy, even though they were the hardest thing we ever did because it grew our faith and it proved that God was God. His promises were true and faithful, even though it didn't seem like the way we wanted it to turn out. But remember those stories today, share them with somebody because maybe somebody else needs to hear them. Or maybe you're walking through a situation right now where you're like, oh, this really hurts to obey God. But I pray that you would do it. You would put your faith in the, in the Lord of heaven and earth into action and trust and obey him, even though the way doesn't seem clear. And then our last example also comes from the Old Testament Rahab. The Old Testament is cool. It's got some amazing stories in it, right? So the story of Rahab comes from the book of Joshua. It's at the time when the Israelites had just come out of Egypt and they had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And God was ready to make good on his promises and send them into the promised land. And so in order to do so, they send out these spies to go and see this town called Jericho, the one with the walls and they come tumbling down, if you remember your Sunday school song. And so before the walls come tumbling down, there was a woman named Rahab who is identified both here in James and also in Joshua and also in Hebrews as a prostitute. Just plain and simple. She made her livelihood in a way that didn't please God. And she was also a pagan. She belonged to the people of Jericho that God was getting ready to abolish, wipe off the face of the earth. It's pretty crazy. And so Rahab commits treason to make enemies of all sides. And she hides these Hebrew spies. And she tells the authorities, you haven't seen anything here. And then she lets them escape by another route. So why would she do this? It says in Joshua 2, 9 through 11, that she tells the Hebrew spies exactly why. You see, she had heard the stories of what God had done. And she said that actually all of the, her people were trembling with fear. They had heard 
that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and allowed his people to come through on dry land. They had heard that these wandering nomads had actually conquered some nearby kings, which theoretically should have never happened. And so she decided that if this town of Jericho was devoted to destruction because that was the Lord's will, well, that was the way it was going to be. And so she said, the God, your God, is the Lord of heaven and on earth, and I'm going to choose to follow him. So this pagan prostitute puts her faith into action, risking everything to hide these spies. And in return, she says, when you come back, rescue me, rescue my family, and I will follow your God. And we find out exactly what happens to her much later in the book of Matthew. Chapter 1, when we learn about the genealogy of Jesus. So Rahab marries into the people of God after she leaves everything behind her. And she becomes the mother of Boaz, who marries Ruth. And they have a son named Obed. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. So Rahab is willing to leave her lifestyle of prostitution, her livelihood made by prostitution, and her loyalties to her people. She left everything behind and became part of God's family. And the Lord blessed her in it. She risked everything for him. And I was thinking, wow, aren't we all so much like Rahab? Because of our sinful ways, we're destined for destruction if it weren't for the saving rescue of our Lord Jesus. And by his redeeming work, he did save us and transformed us if we're willing to leave everything behind and follow him and bring us into his family. But just like Rahab, our faith can't stop at just believing that we need to be rescued we must also be willing to be changed for every, ever, leave everything behind. Our lifestyle, our livelihood, and our loyalties also have to be evaluated in accordance with Scripture. And we have to continually ask the Holy Spirit to convict our hearts and show us where those things need to be changed. So I wanted to conclude this morning with these three stories in mind that teach us how to put our faith to work. And Holy, the Holy Scripture can be used by the Holy Spirit to challenge us, to both encourage us and convict us, maybe where our faith has grown a little complacent or inactive. And they can also help us realize when we look back to those times where we have put our faith to work, that God has provided everything we've ever needed. As I look at these people in these stories and I think about my own self in these times, it's not a like, yay me, I did it. It's a, it's a conviction of humility, right? That God would allow us to work in his kingdom, to be the small pencil with which he's writing the love letters, his love letters to the world through us. It's also humbling because we can recognize that none of these things, these acts of faith, could we ever do of our own volition, right? I'm just like, that is too much. Let me just sit here on my couch. That's fine. But if we really let ourselves do that, we've just installed a screen door on our submarine of faith, and it's sinking. It's as good as dead, James writes. So I wanted to just give us a little bit of time to have these reflections, questions. And then we'll close in prayer. So these are the reflection questions from these three examples of putting our faith to work that James gives. Question one, number one, do I emulate the love that Jesus has for me when I see the needy and care for them? 
And do I enact my love for Jesus, loving them as I would love my Lord and Savior? Do I trust and obey God, even when it's costly and sacrificial and the way seems unclear, like Abraham did with Isaac? Or like Rahab, do I continually evaluate my lifestyle, what I do for fun, what my house looks like, how I spend my time and my treasure, my livelihood, how do I make money, what do I do with my money, my loyalties, because we have a kingdom and a king that's not of this world. And do I ask if those things are in accordance with the will of the one true king as it's revealed in scripture? Because I've heard those stories like Rahab has, and I recognize that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. And I'm willing to be changed and challenged even when it's risky. So maybe just take a few minutes and think about those questions. Maybe jot them down if it's something that you wanna talk with somebody later or take to the Lord in prayer this week. And maybe these questions are really hard, but I wanted to offer two hopes about faith too. Number one, it says in 1 Timothy that when we sometimes are, fa are faithless, God remains faithful, just like he did in the story of Abraham. And in Hebrews, the author writes that it is Jesus who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. If we call upon him in prayer and pray and don't doubt, as James admonishes us to do, we will have abundance of provision from our Lord and Savior as we enact our faith and put it to work. Let me pray for us. God, we're here to proclaim that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, and your ways are mightier and higher than ours could ever be. And I pray for here for us all to have living faith, faith that is encouraged and convicted to act in the ways that you would have us to act. And as we do, let our light shine so that others might see you and praise you, for you are glorious and you are faithful. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of salvation that only you could have given. In Jesus' name, amen.